people, welcome to the Montpelier Happy Hour. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this week I am feeling really nostalgic. Does autumn do that to you? It it definitely does it to me. <laughs> so this week I'm sharing with you the very first show Emily and I recorded in February 2019. And I tell you, this, this episode is bringing back so many me- memories because it was before we started airing the happy hour on WVEW or before we had the really great theme music that you hear from Red Heart the Ticker. And it's before Brattleboro Community Television, BCTV, started broadcasting the video versions of the show across uh, public access stations in Vermont. In fact, we weren't even recording on video in 2019. So, wow! <laughs> so many changes have, have come in the the ensuing years. So, so, I hope you enjoy the show and here is the very first episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour, titled H57, The Power of Witnessing and Flipping the Wage Script. Take care, everyone. Welcome to this very first episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour, where we discuss how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and my guest today is House Rep. Emily Kornheiser. She is one of three representatives from the town of Brattleboro. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Olga. I am so excited to be here for the first show. I am so excited you're here, too, and I'm, I'm inaugurating this show with one of my favorite uh, mock tales, which is Lemon, Lime, and Bitters, because you know it's always 5 o'clock somewhere. Um, what is your drink of choice today to, to go with our Montpelier news? Well, we had this incredible reception at the State House yesterday where the Vermont Distillers Association came, the Vermont Brewers Association came, and there was a lot of different local cheeses. And so I was tasting quite a few of our local bourbons and was thinking about my very favorite drink, which I think is perfect for winter. And so I wanted to have tonight as a Negroni. Negroni is my father's favorite cocktail. And I found out recently it's Barack Obama's favorite <laughs> cocktail. <laughs> you're in, you're in good um, hands. So I'm in such good company. So I'm... a Negroni is one part sweet or dark vermouth, one part bourbon or rye generally bourbon, and one part Campari. Oh, I love Campari. Me too. And my twist on it, because that's a whole lot of liquor in a glass, (laughs) is (laughs) I like to then make it half tonic um, to lighten up the drink a little bit. Smart. And the reason I think this is such a perfect winter drink is it has all of the heaviness and richness of bourbon, because in winter, I at least like to really sort of dive into the darkness a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the Campari makes it this incredible, rich color, brings a little bit of citrus into it. And so it makes that deep darkness a little more alive. Perfect. That's what I'm drinking tonight. That is yeah. perfect for Vermont winters. Um so let's dive in to talk about what happened this week in Montpelier that held your attention. What were you working on? One thing that happened this week in Montpelier was on Wednesday night, we had a hearing, a big public hearing in the well of the house for H-57. Mm-hmm. And H-57 is um, the bill that looks to codify into Vermont law the abortion practices that um, 
have been existing in Vermont since Roe versus Wade. It is a first. Vermont has no existing laws on the books regarding abortion. Um, we've uh. been just following the following Roe versus Wade since that passed. And this year, legislators have been pausing and thinking, given the national landscape, what are some things we need to put into place to protect Vermonters if things change dramatically at the national level? And so H-57 is one of those laws. Now, I'm a little curious about H-57. Um, it's One thing about it is even if it codifies into Vermont law uh, the right to choose, it Vermont law can't supersede federal law. So what happens if Roe v. Wade gets overturned? Will this Vermont law still be in place? Ooh, so I'm not exactly positive on all of that. Um, and yesterday about six people on the floor said, well, I'm not an attorney, but. So I'm going to do an, uh, well, I'm not an attorney, but. <laughs> My understanding um, is if Roe versus Wade is overturned, then the power actually devolved to the states because uh-huh. what Roe versus Wade was, was basically um, something that superseded the state. So it's, if it's overturned, then the power devolves back to the states again. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. Even with the caveat of neither of us are attorneys. If the Vermont, I'm sorry, if the national Congress passed a law um, that was, governing um, women's reproductive rights in some way, mm-hmm. that would supersede Vermont law. But um, the overturning of Roe versus Wade would be sort of bringing us back to before Roe versus Wade. Gotcha. Now, that still needs to go to the Senate, correct? It does still need... It actually needs to pass out of committee and be voted on oh. the floor. It hasn't even been voted on the floor. Okay, and why sorry. I wanted to bring it up is because there was this big public hearing, and it was really interesting to me for a number of reasons. Um, one, the incredible dignity that the, um, the committee really led the hearing with. So the way it was set up is people signed up in advance for testimony, um, and people had to sign up either for or against the issue, which um, is something I think you and I have talked about before, that that's sort of one of the things that makes me uncomfortable mm-hmm. about working the legislature, is that one is always for or against something rather than just bringing further understanding and nuance to it. Right. Um, And so people had to sign up for or against, and they sat down for testimony. Um, hundred people gave testimony. Everyone had exactly two minutes to give testimony. Mm -hmm. A lot of men gave testimony against a woman's reproductive rights. That was, you know, that was quite interesting. (sighs) Mm -hmm. Um, And (laughs) for me, it was a really powerful opportunity to sit and listen deeply to people I really disagree with. Mm-hmm. And because of the atmosphere of um, sort of respect and dignity and um, quiet in the well of the house, it made it possible for me to listen fully to people I disagree with. I had no opportunity to be reactive. I had to let it all sort of wash over me, wash through me, and listen fully. And so for me, that was a really powerful opportunity as a legislator to listen to people that I, you know, in the normal course of life, I might struggle to just finish listening to. Mm-hmm. That's other really powerful. That was really interesting. It was really powerful. And people talk a lot about the ritual um, of the state house. And sometimes, much like our starting this whole 
show is cocktail. Sometimes it feels just like a little bit like a bougie excuse, <laughs> but it, <laughs> all of the stagecraft really does make a difference in some ways in our ability to be present with folks who are here to testify. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think um, you you really hit the nail on the head when you talk about um, what resonated for me when you were talking about listening fully to people you may not agree with. You know, that is something as a journalist when I sit in a meeting because I am not allowed to speak and I am just there as a witness. Um, it does change how I interact with the meeting. And the, in this this day of being able to share something on Twitter and it goes around the world in three seconds um, and being able to be constantly reactive, it is really important to have those spaces of listening and witnessing and taking it all in. Witnessing is the exact phrase that I used in the lead up to the hearing. A lot of, um, there was a lot of sort of support given to us by the caucus um, for people to, people were really nervous about the hearing. You know, there was a lot of energy downstairs. Um, a lot of people didn't necessarily feel safe. And for me, it was, I was looking forward to it as this opportunity to witness, um, mm-hmm. witness various people's pain and fear about the laws that were passing. So mm-hmm. it was pretty incredible. The other thing that was really difficult for me about it is I know a young woman in Brattleboro who really very much wanted to come up and testify. She mm-hmm. was a very powerful, painful story to tell. And I was not able to find her a ride up to testify. No one from Brattleboro came up to testify. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, that doesn't surprise me. You know, that no. that trip to Montpelier, while it's not huge because we are kind of a small state we're not a state where it's easy to get anywhere a lot of the times and no. I'm not surprised that folks from the the corners weren't weren't coming up it's only people from this area shift the conversation significantly because we're not hearing people from both the margins of the state the geographic margins and we're not hearing from people at the economic or social margins who have trouble with either transportation or timing or work mm-hmm. and so we're, again, just missing the story of the people who are most affected. I was able to get her video testimony, I think, into the record. Oh, good. But that's different. You know, the media is never going to see that. Um, only, I assume, certain members of the committee are going to be able to take the time to listen in on that. So, um, yeah, it's not the same. You know, and it's not the same for her to have the power of sort of being in front of us and speaking in that way. Right. You know, I, I'm actually surprised that the committees, when they're taking testimony, don't take better advantage of, um, and I'm forgetting what they're called at the moment, but I've actually attended state meetings where they have locations across the state and they can video conference everything. Um, Brattleboro has a location. I think a lot of the community colleges have this technology available. Um, and I'm... Yeah, I've... I've been part of that for um, if an agency is doing some sort of rulemaking or big policy change. It's called Interactive TV or something. There we go. There's an acronym, but yeah. Um, I've been part of hearings for that um, in that way, but I don't know if the legislature ever uses that. That would be an interesting. Yeah, I wonder how hard that would be to enact because it would give many more people access to these giving testimony. Mm-hmm. There we go. Put it. Um, we're, we'll put it on the to-do list. <laughs> we will. We will. Let's make sure we have just an ongoing to-do list that we use for this show. 
Speaking of access, you know, one thing you and I talked about a lot in previous interviews um, is economics and wages and um, what that means when policy is being created in Montpelier, what it means economically for people in the rest of the, the state. I know that the legislative session is still young, it's still getting going, but what has resonated with you so far around um, that issue of economics and um, income inequality? So I requested to be on the Committee of Commerce and Economic Development, and I wanted to be on that committee, one, because I think it's a committee that's able to look long-term and really sort of build slowly, and because I really wanted to be a voice on that committee for an expanded view of economic development, Um, to understand that economic development is an increase in standard of living, and it's about the social well-being of people. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really powerful to be sitting in meetings in my committee, and we are just getting started, as you said, but to be able to bring in issues of housing and child care and to say that unless employees are having sufficient life experiences, um, employers are not going to be able to thrive either. Mm-hmm. And that it is a two-way, three-way, it's a triangle of some kind, and that we need to build out our communities if we want to attract the people to the state that we're thinking about, if we want businesses to be able to thrive, communities need to thrive. It's not, I think, traditionally in economic development, um, and I'm getting a little soapboxy here, but <laughs> I think traditionally in economic development, the theory is if a business thrives, the people will thrive. But we know, we've known for more than 20 years in mainstream economic development that communities need to thrive in order for businesses to thrive. So it's been really incredible to be part of expanding that conversation on my committee. What has been the response when you bring up those issues? And um, I like how you defined economic development because so often I think it's a big catchword without a definition. Um, what has been your, your fellow committee members' response? I think people understand it instinctually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little, I think it's a little uncomfortable for us to sort of go out of our lane a little bit. You know, we, every committee has its jurisdiction, um, and generally childcare is sort of thought of in the Human Services Committee and housing. There's even a committee with housing in the title, so to really understand the interrelationship of these topics and to see how far we can get into it in a way that is meaningful. Um, but I think people are ready and willing and excited to have that conversation. We had a number of people from the Child Development Division come in to testify yesterday about both the challenges of the child care workforce and mm-hmm. the challenges of the cost of child care and that, um, that very complex equation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing um, I want to bring up, and and in part because Governor Scott was reelected and this is his buzzword, was that concept of making Vermont more affordable. Um, Mm. What, looking at your committee work so far, do you think we have some good things on the horizon that can make Vermont affordable? Or do you think we're still kind of shooting in the wrong direction? That's a good question. Um, so I think making Vermont affordable means making sure that people's wages 
are going up Mm -hmm. to be in line with the rest of the country. And I think it means making sure that um, our healthcare costs and our housing costs are not, that healthcare and housing is not in such intense scarcity as it is right now in Wyndham County, that costs for that can go down. And so we have made some progress on that. A lot of employers are coming in and talking about workforce shortages. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it means when we talk to employers, there's less emphasis on creating new jobs and more emphasis on making sure the jobs that exist are the jobs that are going to attract and retain employees. And so that means we really can focus on wages and benefits and training Hmm. in a way that we haven't been able to before. Mm -hmm. So one big hack of the committee right now is workforce development and what that means, whether that means that we're talking to middle school students to make sure that they're engaged and excited about their future, or whether that means that we're looking at all of the folks in Vermont that leave high school and don't go on to a certificate or a four-year college. And making sure that people have ways of moving into more well-paying employment um, without accruing debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting you brought that up because this week for one of my other jobs, the Commons, I interviewed folks at the Wyndham Regional Career Center, and they're talking about their new healthcare path where students actually have the opportunity to sit for the state LPN, no, LNA exam, sorry, LNA exam, um, after they finish their block of of study at the career center. And, you know, I thought that was so great because it, while it's not perfect for every student, it does give students a definite pathway um, to access, the, to get their foot in the door for nursing, which we have a shortage of in Vermont. Yes. And so I think it's really powerful that people have uh, easy access to an LNA. And then I really hope, one, that that's been connected to an LPN and an RN and moving to a place of living wages. But we do still have a problem with an LPN does not pay a living wage. So it's, you know, someone has extra school, maybe it's more meaningful, but it's still paying the same as working at a fast food restaurant. And people should be able to pay their bills when they work at a fast food restaurant. So it is just one piece of the puzzle. And one thing I try to remind my committee is that, you know, I was living in Vermont with a bachelor's degree and a lot of student debt. And I, you know, quite educated and still was not able to have a living wage job. Yes. And I know that resonates for you too, Olga. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) Um, And so training, training, training. But if the folks who are still at the, you know, the jobs that are further down the economic pyramid there's always going to be weird. Those jobs are always going to be there. So those jobs need to pay well too. And I'm hoping that in some ways this um, hypothetical workforce shortage that I still have some questions about, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that really can help raise wages because employers are hypothetically seeing, I won't say the employers are seeing, I'm going to backtrack that sometimes. Employers that pay more have less trouble retaining good staff and mm-hmm. we you know everyone knows that with common sense and so it's making sure that employers have the ability to um do that yeah and understand that that's the solution to their that's a key part of the solution to their problem well and one thing we have to remember in vermont is that we are in competition 
with other states like New Hampshire, like Massachusetts, like Maine, like Rhode Island and Connecticut and New York. And the reason is, is especially with Massachusetts and New Hampshire, from what I understand, our cost of living is on par with those two other states. But because our wages are lower, um, it creates this huge cost of living gap. And if you are a potential worker, and you're looking at a job in Vermont, and you're looking at a job in Massachusetts, and you're like, gee, I could make $3,000 more a year if I live in Massachusetts, and it's going to cost me roughly the same amount to live there. Guess what you're going to do? And I love that you're flipping how that paradigm usually works, because I think the conversation traditionally in the state house has been, we have to make sure that we keep costs low, because we don't want people to buy stuff in Massachusetts or New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. But in fact, at this point, we need to flip that paradigm and say we need to keep wages high so that folks will want to stay here. Yes. And I think that's a really exciting shift. That is a really good point. I had never thought of it that way, but it reminds me of, and I'll just put this out here, maybe it's for future conversations, but I've had a number of friends who, of course, I, I grew up in Vermont, and so this is the water I, I have learned to swim in. But I have a number of friends who moved here, and they love living here. This is, this is the home of their heart. Uh, but they have said to me, and more than one friend has said this to me independently of each other, they have said, you know, one thing that we find frustrating about Vermont sometimes is that Vermonters often keep their bar low. You know, they keep their um, what they want to achieve or what they think they can they can achieve. They keep that that bar really low for themselves. And they their point was we they felt that Vermonters sometimes shoot themselves in the foot. Um, But I think that goes to your point about, well, let's keep things cost down so that people want to buy things here and not in. New Hampshire or Massachusetts rather than, like you said, let's raise wages so people want to stay here. Absolutely. And, you know, the line that I used in my campaign was, we are never going to win a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. There are other states that are so far ahead of us on a race to the bottom. (laughs) So (laughs) We'll let them have it. We will let them have that, and why don't we be part of a race to the top? You know, Vermont already is this is a place with, in some ways, a beautiful, amazing quality of life and rich community culture and all of these things. And so why not continue to build on that with living wage jobs and accessible health care and good child care and housing that people feel warm and safe inside? And be sort of the shining light of all of that livability to show America that, you know, we can actually do that. Mm-hmm. And know, I think wages are where that starts. I agree. I agree because I think that's sort of the, um, the, the shift in the puzzle that has to happen before other pieces can fall into place. You know, I saw a couple press releases came across my email box this week or maybe last week as well. Um, One was Governor Scott talking about the ability for new moms to bring their infants to work. And then also the the by state, the Vermont, New Hampshire um, paid family leave uh, bill. 
what yeah. what are your responses to both of those? Because I think the governor, I'm, I'm guessing that the governor would say these are things that make Vermont more affordable. Um, yes. What are your thoughts? So paid family leave. Um, I think it's really important to talk about the difference between a universal program and a voluntary program and what the impacts of those are. So yesterday we had... Um, we got an update on the unemployment trust fund. That's something that my committee has to focus on. So we had a long conversation about unemployment. And the Department of Labor and everyone in Vermont is very comfortable with the fact that unemployment insurance is a socialized program. Hmm. Right? All employers have to pay into it. When you pay out from it, it doesn't necessarily match up with, you know, how much you've paid in. It's a big pool. That pool is invested. It's held in common for all Vermonters. That means that it works. That means that there's stability from year to year. It means that the economists of the state are able to predict out. It means that we are able to withstand the profound downturns of the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And it means that if one employer is struggling with it, or if a whole group of employers are struggling with it, we can look at that system to try to shift it a little bit to benefit everyone. Gotcha. With a non-universal family leave program, we don't have that pool to balance out risk, to serve folks who are um, struggling more. We essentially just have a privatized insurance program that people can buy into. So I know one woman, good friend of mine, who is a much more sort of organized, career-oriented lady than I am. And she, you know, has been sort of moving up the ladder at her skinny corporate job in Vermont for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And when she started there, she bought into the temporary disability program that her employer offered. And so after she'd been enrolled in the temporary disability program that her employer offered, for five years, she then got pregnant and had a baby and took family medical leave using that temporary disability insurance. Okay. I think there's maybe like 12 people in the world that live their lives in that organized way. <laughs> well, and you strike me as very organized. So if you're saying this person's more organized than you, then they must be the gold medalist of organization. Yeah, it's just not how people's lives work. <laughs> this you is know? true. Yeah. Um. And especially if, you know, we want families here um, raising their children and we know how many people are living here with parents that are aging and are going to have medical needs. It's just not something that you can plan for. You can't plan for catastrophic medical issues, whether those are, um, you know, on the child side or on the elderly side or whatever they are. Or your own so, personal side. You could be in a horrible or car your own accident. personal side. Yes. So without, without a universal system, you're not mitigating that risk and you're leaving out the folks who might be the most vulnerable who need this the most. I worry that, um, I think Vermont really regularly, because of how invested we are in bipartisan compromise solutions, we often put these um, halfway measures in as a stepping stone towards something. Mm-hmm. But something, a halfway measure, such as an opt-in family medical leave program, is not going to work 
And so we're going to see that as a testing ground for something that's going to fail, and then we won't ever be able to move towards the universal system, which would work. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. Okay, I see your point. I see your point. What about the argument, though, um, that I hear some opponents make of, well, it will just make the cost of doing business too expensive, and in the long run, that will hurt workers? So we have employers that are already doing this, right? And they're doing that at significant expense to them. Mm-hmm. And they are then not competitive often in the market with employers who are not offering these levels of benefits to their employees. This is a way of really profoundly leveling the playing field and lowering the cost for employers who are doing this. It's, and I think um, universal health care could have a similar effect that we are actually lowering the cost significantly for employers who are offering benefits. Right. And we're allowing other people to offer those benefits who have wanted to, but who have not been able to afford it because they might have a, you know, a lower profit margin than their business plan. Mm -hmm. Well, I was having a conversation with a business owner recently and they surprised me with their thoughts on universal healthcare. They're like, we should have it because it will actually free up the workforce, which will make life easier for employers because there are so many employees who hang on to a job because they need the benefits, where if benefits were more mobile, they could move to a job that maybe they liked or they would retire, and that would free up the employer to get someone who was happier in that job. Absolutely. So I think, you know, I have a lot of doubts about the promise of the gig economy because of workforce protection, Mm -hmm. but we are moving to a workforce that is much more mobile and flexible. And so the more of those traditional benefits that can sit with the state and away from the employer, the more able people are going, the more flexible businesses will be able to be and the more flexible employees will be able to be. Um, I have, you know, I had a beautiful pension system that sat with the state of Vermont. I don't work for the state of Vermont anymore as a um, sort of union employee mm-hmm. and it just sits there now and I have no idea what to do with it. I can't really access it. I wasn't there long enough. Oh, I can't move it anywhere else. It's just this bizarre pot of money that, you know, is totally going to sit, you know, I don't know what to do with it. Right. And yet it is technically your part, part of pot of money because you were the worker who put in the effort to earn yes. that, yeah. that pot. Huh. That's an interesting yeah. conundrum. The other thing is the way um, the family medical leave um, at least ended last session was vetoed. The entire cost of it was with employees, not with employers. It was a payroll tax that was not split. That's right. So that's what got vetoed. Um, Mm -hmm. I, you know, think that splitting it is a much more equitable path. Um, But as it left last session, it was so uh emily we're just about out of time but i want to touch base on looking ahead into the next week what is on your either on your agenda to tackle in your committee work or on the floor and or what do you think is is coming to the house or senate that you think people should pay attention to so my committee is going to be finishing up our work i think on non-compete clauses um oh, which interesting. i will if you want to go deep into the geekery of that, I would love to do that next week. Okay. And then um, 
on the floor, I think we are going to be looking at family medical leave. Um, I think we're going to be looking at um, a little bit of work on prisons and incarceration and private prisons. Um, and that's what I know of on the horizon in the house. Okay. Um, it's, things are not moving to the floor very much. Things are very active in committee right now. Um, because all of the bills don't even have to be turned in yet. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, to be honest, I know when things come to the floor, it's much more dramatic and much more sexy. But I have to say, if you are out there listening and you want to have input on uh, a piece of legislation, doing it while it's still in committee is, I would say, a much more powerful time to make your voice heard because the committee has more flexibility to change things. Absolutely. And that is the time. Things are usually pretty much decided before they come to the floor. So it's pretty fun to go onto the legislature website, which is actually a very well-constructed website. It is, yeah. And you can see all of the bills in and out of committee and just scroll through them. Vermont prides itself on having the titles of the bill actually match the content of the bill, (laughs) um, which is not necessarily true on the national scene. So it can really just take, you know, five minutes and scroll through all the things and see what jumps out at you and take a look at where it is and what's going on. It was wonderful to have you as the guest for the very first Montpelier happy hour. And um, I look forward to when we, we talk again. Um, We should actually talk about before I let you go question and answer. So Emily is more than happy to take questions from folks. And then we will have a special like a bonus podcast on some of those questions. So Emily, how can people reach out to you if they have questions? Folks can email me at emilykornheiser at gmail.com, or they can add a question on my website, which is emilykornheiser.org, or they can find me on Facebook and post it there. I'm pretty easy to find, and whatever way people want to get questions to me, they are welcome to do that. And I already have one in the hopper for us, Olga. Awesome. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. (laughs) And if you want... um... This podcast uh, will be going up on the Vermontitude Facebook page, in which case you can always leave messages there as well for either Emily or myself. Um, And Emily, thank you for joining us today for the Montpelier Happy Hour. Thank you, Olga. I'm your host, Olga Peters. Thank you for listening. And we will be back next week at 5 p.m.